Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Out you go. Why? You're out in custody. Your bail's been paid. I've been in the custody of my parents for almost 20 years now. And they've taught me nothing but self-doubt, frustration, and perpetual guilt. I'm going to be in my own custody from now on. I won't go. A nice-looking girl paid it. I'll go. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Bart. Uh, we're talking about something that everybody probably knows something about today. Francis Ford Coppola. He directed a, a several pretty popular movies. Never heard of him. <laughs> Not in the 60s. So maybe uh, maybe the movies we're talking about tonight are, are fairly unfamiliar to, to a lot of people. But anyone listening to this has seen their fair share of Francis Ford Coppola movies and probably knows that he's uh, one of the major figures in uh, the so-called new Hollywood of uh, the late 60s and 70s. So we're going to talk about uh, his his 60s career. He, ha- he actually had a career in the 60s that spanned the whole decade, but you know he didn't really make his famous movies like, say, The Godfather until the uh, the following decade. So we're, we're going to take you through Francis's career, starting in softcore pornography through American International Roger Corman years into the Seven Arts Warner Brothers early New Hollywood stuff that he uh, did at the end of the decade. And uh, we're, we're going to tell the story of how Hollywood rebuilt itself, sort of, finally, after promising to do so on our website from, uh, from the beginning of, of us starting this series. We've promised to talk about how uh, how Hollywood rebuilt itself, and and I think this is this is based this is pretty much the first time we're we're actually going to tackle that subject. But before that, before the salacious and fun and wildly entertaining episode that we have for you, what's your favorite Coppola film? The Conversation. Uh, I just rewatched that and I loved it. Yeah, way more than when I first saw it, and I actually rented it from you. The first time and fully didn't get it. It was like too soon. I didn't really understand what New Hollywood was. Couldn't I like couldn't wrap my head around what was happening. I think I fell asleep half. <laughs> and then I just went to San Francisco like a month ago. And part of my trip, I planned around going to Coppola's winery because I figured screw it. Oh, I thought and- you were going to tell me you planned around uh, spying on people with high-powered microphones well i did that too but that's you know we're not talking about that part of it well i went to i was thinking about coppola i went to his winery i i tasted his wine (laughs) (laughs) it was actually really fun weird there's so many weird people at that winery like everyone's like very very rich and white it's exactly who you think is going to be at a winery but like and there's like a whole film museum and like there was nobody really like looking at it when I was there and that was weird because it was pretty dang cool and the woman who was our server 
was very very nice no complaints about her but she didn't she hadn't seen a single Coppola movie <laughs> I think you told me about that yeah like what the hell she was like oh, Godfather what's that yeah she was I mean to, in her defense she had just gotten hired there so she has plenty of time to to go check it out and and she was sort of like well they're all depressing and, and after work I don't want to be depressed and I was like well that's valid <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, come on. I was like, you got to. I was like, they're all great. So then after this, I have been thinking about Coppola and I started watching a, a handful of Coppola movies that I hadn't seen, like Dracula, which there were all these costumes uh, at his winery. So it was cool to go see the film after I had already seen these really amazing costumes in person. And that film was crazy. I like did not expect anything about that. And then um, the other thing that I watched recently that I, that really stood out to me was Rumblefish. Which I've seen, but it just gets overshadowed by the outsiders in my head. I need to rewatch Rumblefish. I do like it. I think I like it more than The Outsiders, but only because I think if I had seen The Outsiders when I was younger, it would have really done something. But I saw it when I was like jaded 30 year old. So I basically spent a lot of time laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It was great. Like, don't get me wrong. It is like the most tender film I have ever seen in my life. But poor pony boy. He can't handle you laughing at him. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Apocalypse Now, I'm going to go straight up Apocalypse Now for my favorite Coppola. Oh. I, I mean, it's it's absolutely one of the most memorable films I've ever seen. But uh, and I do like and I like the Godfather movies, too. The first of Godfather course. movie I think is perfection, but I don't really care about gangsters, and I, you know, I've seen it a couple times. I don't. It's possible I'll never watch it again in my life. Peggy Sue got married is the sleeper film, though. That's the one that you you all need to watch if you haven't seen it, because it's like his other masterpiece. It's it's up there with The Godfather and Apocalypse Now as far as being emotionally affecting and and just killer. Like, it just made me weep. <laughs> and I had no expectations for that movie whatsoever. I was like, ah, this is going to be fun and lighthearted. And it was like, no, this just ripped my fucking soul out of my body. <laughs> I think it makes a few too many concessions to to 80s Hollywood uh, tropes to be uh, totally a perfect movie. But uh, it does. I, I do really like it. It does, and yet it still destroyed me, and that's the power of Coppola. <laughs> but yeah, in the 60s, as you said, it was all nudie flicks. Well, <laughs> that's where it started. That's where he got his start anyway. He was kind of a sickly kid, and uh, his parents would give him gadgets to play with, and he got cameras and things, and just at a very early age, he decided he wanted to make movies. He went to film school, UCLA. It wasn't exactly what he wanted it to be. I mean, Dorothy Arzner was his uh, mentor there, but it's still like um, he, he wanted more hands-on experience. So he, he got this tip that, uh, oh, yeah, if you if you make uh, nudie flicks, the, the people, somebody will buy it right up. So he, he thought, well, this is a way to shoot some footage, edit it together and have somebody pay him for it. So, uh, yeah. And according to my notes, all of his uh, fellow students were pissed off, thought he was a total sellout for making nudie flicks. But as you said, he just wanted to get something made, so he did it. Yeah. I mean, his his very first film that he completed was uh, was called The Peeper. It, it was a short 
nudie film about a, a guy who is sort of obsessed with seeing what's going on in the art photography studio next door where uh, he knows that uh, naked women are, are being photographed. Well, nobody, nobody bought the peeper um, as is this 20 minute nudie cutie movie, but it did end up getting incorporated into the first feature that uh, had uh, his name in the credits. And that's tonight for sure, which you're going to talk about tonight for sure. 1962. Both of these movies that we're going to start with. And, and I, I find this, we're going to get to where all of this fits in, but um, to start out, it's pretty dire. <laughs> I'm going to tell you straight up tonight for sure. It kind of cobbled together film. It was basically combining the peeper into another film, uh, which was this West, this other film about like a Western, about a cowboy who kept seeing girls as naked girls. And so they like basically told Coppola, we're going to buy your short and here's like a cup, here's $500 and we need you to intercut it with our short and then just make some connecting footage to salvage it uh, because no nobody was buying either of the two films. So they figured let's, let's put them together and, and make, <laughs> make a movie everyone's going to love. So he did it. I mean, he was Francis Coppola director. So yeah, this was his first credit as a director, which I which was very exciting for him. He also gets credit for being a writer. I think he might might have also been editor for some of this at least. Uh just just judging by a quote I have from him here. But um the movie, I mean <laughs> basically these two men meet up in a strip club. This guy named Ben and this guy named Sam and like one looks like he, you know, is a churchgoer and one looks like he's from the, the Wild West and together they meet up and they're clearly like there and they keep talking about like, oh, it's so disgusting. This is so disgusting. And they sit in the back of the strip club and they're up to no good. They're, there's something that they're plotting and that we don't know until the end of the film that they're actually installing a bomb in this strip club. But in the meanwhile, as they sit there and wait for everything to happen, they're they're talking to each other over and over about how this is just so terrible. Look at what these women do to men. And this is just the, you know, the moral fiber of America and yada, yada, yada. And as they're talking, they, they express to each other like, oh, well, I knew, you know, this one guy who just kept seeing topless women in the desert and, and you know. The other guy's like, well, I know, you know, for me, it was just that there was this model studio next door to me that was just driving me crazy. And, you know, through these flashbacks, one of them is the the naked cowboy one is like, well, he's not naked. The naked cowgirl one is just that, you know, it's basically like women, like topless women rounding up cattle. <laughs> and then eventually they end up in a gant, like, you know, in uh, a casino and all of the women are topless there. Whereas that peeper one, you it's very, very clear as it's already becoming clear in the film that, you know, this this uptight guy is actually a secret pervert. And 
the thing I'll give it that's kind of amusing is that as they, you know, are sitting there talking about how horrible everything is with the world today and they're ordering drinks, they keep moving closer and closer and closer to the stage of where the strippers are. So, you know, it's like this sort of like dumb joke about them clearly being huge perverts that are only there to see naked women, but they have, you know, it's like the hypocrites. That's, that's it. It's just about hypocrites. That's, that's more of a summary than this movie deserves. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the whole thing's pretty absurd. I mean, it's comedy minded. So in a way I didn't, I didn't like hate this. It was like, you know, I I mean, at worst it was just really boring. I mean, like this is the, the kind of, you know, these nudie flicks to me don't really do anything because I don't really, if I want to see a naked woman, I can look in a mirror. You know what I mean? Like, I'm fine. Like, I don't, it, it doesn't really, nothing excites me here. Yeah, there's nothing sexual about it. It's just, yeah, it's just topless women. The excitement of seeing a woman topless. That's it. You know, and, and so, like, as long as there's like a, a comedy slant for just how stupid this all is, then like, I, I can, like, I, you know, I get it a little bit. But was it like exciting? No. <laughs> <laughs> I you put it in the context of the time and that's the only way that you can sort of understand why a movie like this even exists. Playboy was uh was hot and uh na- naked women were uh part of the American uh American fiber of the of the time. It's uh if you're a red-blooded male, what you what you're going to want to do is just see some naked women. I will say that like at least the the peeper portion of this is a lot more clever in just how it is telling its story. Like that you have this guy in his apartment where every time he like flips a switch, something reveals like a, a naked, a photo of a naked woman right behind the, you know, the cross or so. I don't know. I don't even remember, <laughs> but there's always these little things and like around his apartment that are revealing that he's just a huge pervert. And, and so that was kind of fun. At least like there was something that was like slightly more clever than just, the the cowboy one, which was just ridiculous. I mean, it's like just naked women like posing with cacti. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he rubs his eyes, and they're wearing clothes again. There's nothing, <laughs> nothing clever about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are actually like gags with setups in the peeper half. You, you you would not know that this was the director that would go on to make The Godfather, but you can see that he's a bit more ambitious than your average pervy nudie flick filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, like his his portion of this has a plot. Whether or not it is good is <laughs> another question. But yeah, it's a little bit more interesting. The next nudie f- flick that he did was the Bellboy and the Playgirls from Actually, this was it's also something that was cut together from pre-existing footage. It was a German production in black and white. And Coppola, I think his footage is the color footage that is at, at the end in 3D, which honestly, I <laughs> now, all the all the uh, color footage is him. And yeah. when the bellboy is in the theater and he sh- he shoots that stuff in black and white. But right, because he's cutting it all together again. Coppola, though, I mean, he was pretty dismissive of this, too. It was pretty much just a job. He received $250 for his effort. Found that out. 
Yeah, I mean, like, it was just that this was, again, just another way to get some experience and to do something. Though, quite frankly, it's very, very clear as we go on through all these films that this wasn't merely to get experience. Coppola loved this shit. <laughs> <laughs> He's, yeah, he was definitely a, a, a horny guy. Yeah, it's it's very, very obvious. Um, for the Bellboy and the Playgirls, the, the plot here, this one is even worse than the first one <laughs> it's basically it's about a bellboy there's just various situations in which he either remembers or finds himself in and they all of course end on just something about a play and a woman who doesn't want to you know play the the slut on stage there's something about um lingerie models who are staying in a hotel that the, the bellboy mistakes for hookers and which is because they sit around naked all the time and have a madam and all of this. And, you know, he pretends to be the man that they're looking for, who is turns out to be like a buyer for the lingerie, but he doesn't know that. So he pretends to be this other guy just so that he can look at all the naked women. And in the end, it's it's basically just that that's what that 3D sequence is. It's just these women sitting around in the hotel room naked playing cards and shit. It's like this weird voyeuristic, like nothing's happening. It's just like, here's all the topless women, boys, you know, like that's it. Yeah, we didn't uh, watch it in 3D, but I think it I think the sequence where he comes into the room dressed in drag and wants to be a model. I think all of that is the 3D part. And he gets like covered in shaving cream and lots of lots of pratfalls there's ancient greek hookers <laughs> there's charlemagne and his 900 wives there is a very very tall woman with a tiny the tiniest waist i've ever seen uh yeah it's just crap the whole <laughs> it's <laughs> terrible and it's cut together from this, this incomprehensible german stuff that's not even interesting or funny and has no naked ladies in it like barely and, you know, it's all dubbed in English and it all he makes it all work together. But this is really I mean, this is this is the dregs for me. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing here for me. Yeah, this is this is awful. Um, I mean, the, the the guy who plays the bellboy, Don Kenny, is his name. He didn't have a career, but he was also the cowboy in Tonight for Sure. So he was apparently buddies with uh, with Coppola. And he's I mean, he's not terrible he's doing sort of a sort of a jerry lewis kind of shtick but it's really sub sub par jerry lewis and jerry lewis is already so <laughs> so subpar in my opinion that that this is just almost impossible to to sit through i mean i dare you to watch this movie and then watch jerry lewis's bellboy movie and not think jerry lewis is a god <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that June Wilkinson, who plays the the madam, the designer of the lingerie for these women, um, she is a famous Playboy centerfold. She and I don't think she takes her clothes off at all in this movie, but she she's got something like she 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 could actually act. It was it was kind of strange to see the sexy bombshell who doesn't take her clothes off actually give kind of an enjoyable performance but that's about the best i can say about this movie but um francis was starting to get paid for his efforts uh he still hadn't graduated from uh from ucla he he wanted to he, you know he wanted to step up from this really like super low budget sleaze that he was doing and uh sort of the next 
step up from from that is to work for uh, Roger Corman and American International Pictures, which they produced a lot of low budget by Hollywood standards, but but higher budget than uh, than these nudie flicks he was making. Um, they're you know they they made a lot of drive-in fodder for teenagers, um, just action movies for the screen. Uh, Corman had just come off doing a series of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations with uh, with Vincent Price and uh, American International Pictures got their hands on uh, the Soviet science fiction film called Nebo Zavyat. Uh, from 1959, and uh, Corman actually went to Dorothy Arzner, who uh, was was Coppola's mentor at uh, at UCLA, and said, "I need somebody to do something with this movie so we can release it." And she she recommended Francis, and uh, and that was the start of him uh, working with Corman and uh, and the creation of Battle Beyond the Sun, 1962. Coppola took this movie. He couldn't speak any Russian, and there were no subtitles. Um, like he had no idea what anybody was saying, and he managed to script and dub a whole story around what he saw on the screen, like what he was sort of assuming was happening in it. Corman wanted him to add some creature effects, so there's um, it. It all sort of builds to this climax where there's there's this like penis space monster that's fighting with a vagina space monster and that's all like that was all shot by coppola that was his you know pretty much the only thing that he actually shot for the film the rest was him just you know creating the dialogue and and uh this is strike three for why coppola is a pervert (laughs) so he had one monster to make and the first thing he made was a giant vagina monster with fallopian tubes hanging off the top and shit yeah or at least there are no naked ladies in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I, it's actually, you, you know, what what he managed to come up with was a, is a fairly engaging, pretty straightforward sci-fi story about these two countries. Uh, in in the original, it's the uh, Soviet Union and the United States who are uh, presumably uh, at uh, trying to each is trying to be the first to get a man to Mars. Um, at least that was what Coppola decided was happening in the movie. But C- Corman didn't want people to know that uh, this was a Russian film. So Coppola created, set it in the uh, in the near future where the whole world is divided into two countries. It's uh, North Hemis and South Hemis. Yeah, North Hemis and South Hemis. And there, so the world is divided by hemispheres. Right. So they're in a space race to get to uh, to Mars first and uh and north or I, I don't know i think north is is the the u.s um you know in the original and they sort of um get get wind of uh i don't it's it's too hard to to talk about this and try and uh you know they meet up in in their space station and they uh they find out that they're that you know nobody knows when their next launch is going to be and they're trying to be nice to each other and south hemis lets on that actually we're going to launch tomorrow we think that's going to be the best day and then north hemis goes oh my god we got it now we have to go right now to beat them 
and you know the 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 rays of the sun aren't right or something and so it ends up in disaster yeah i mean that's what happens i i found it more interesting trying to figure out what uh what the original was trying to say about the uh, relations between the, the ussr <laughs> but it uh yeah i mean the other thing that coppola did was there were um the the soviet rocket spaceship had you know cyrillic letters on the side of it and uh, so he had to like go in and i think hand color over all of the all of those letters so he put some sort of like eagle sort of symbol there over over everything so you can sort of see the shaky rectangle that's that's clearly covering something and uh whenever you see the the soviet spaceship yeah i mean i i this is a lot better than his nudie flicks but to call this coppola's film is uh questionable he worked really hard to make it releasable so i think it deserves to be mentioned but uh yeah pretty pretty minor in the uh in in the back catalog of of coppola i mean i'm with you on the, the you know this this film looks really really cool but what looks cool is the russian film not coppola's film <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah the effects are great there's some amazing like they're really great pre precursor to 2001 type uh type space effects in yeah this. and they're and they're good like they're they're an example i mean in this movie the original russian movie i think came out in the late 50s i was looking it up the effects are, are re they're really impressive like the the models that they use and just how they you know so it like to to compare it to 2001 is actually kind of interesting because you kind of see how things have changed over 10 years as far as effects go but uh it actually looks great yeah i mean it seems like a lot of the same techniques are being used uh that coppola used 10 years later but uh you know had a lot more money to spend on them. Coppola did get his dad, Carmine Coppola, to do the the score for the uh, the American release of this movie. He also, I think, he also got his dad to do the music for Tonight for Sure. His dad was a conductor in the Pitt Orchestra for a, a, for traveling theatrical productions and uh, was a something of a composer himself. So uh, through throughout Coppola's career, he got his dad, Carmine, to to do the music, you know, whenever he wanted a more classical romantic uh, orchestral sort of sound score to his movies. It's generally his dad, but yeah, not, not much more to say about this one, but uh, perhaps there's even less to say about the terror, which got released the next year in 1963. <laughs> Roger Corman is the gets the directorial credit for this film um, because he shot a bunch of it at the tail end of, of the shoot for The Raven, the 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 last Poe adaptation he did with Boris Karloff, and he had a you know a couple of couple of days left. He was ahead of schedule and uh, just shot a bunch of stuff with Boris Karloff in this castle before they tore down the sets. A couple of days later, he managed to to shoot several hours of footage with. Karloff just doing very Poe-like things. And then, yeah, and then just it just sat in a can for a while. Then five different people came along to try and 
you know, add footage to this thing uh, to to sort of turn it into a an actual movie. You know, create a story around what Corman had shot of of Boris Karloff. Coppola was one of the last people to be brought in to contribute to this thing. And I guess there's there a lot there's a lot of stuff shot in, on the on the beach. This this castle is uh, the big climactic scene is this flood that destroys the castle. So I think they had to. Corman was probably like, oh well, we need to show where this water is coming from so francis go shoot a bunch of stuff on a beach and uh francis ford coppola just shot um jack nicholson who's kind of the hero of this movie uh interacting with this ghostly woman who uh may or may not be the uh the wife of the baron of the castle played by uh boris karloff she may or may not be a a bird that's been transformed into a woman or a woman that can transform into a bird. And there's, there's a witch that, that Jack Nicholson, he's, he's a, a French soldier who's kind of lost his way during the Napoleonic Wars. And, uh, and that's why he's ended up here, but he becomes fascinated by, by this woman that he sees on the beach um, played by Jack Nicholson's real life wife, Sandra Knight, um, who's not very good, but she's beautiful. So I guess that's, that's all you need for a Corman movie. And uh, it's, it's really hard to say how much of what Coppola shot actually made it into the final version of this film, the final cut. But uh, Jack Hill, who who did cinematography, he was, I believe he was a UCLA classmate of Francis Ford Coppola. And he went on to to have a pretty interesting career in, in exploitation movies, I think with with American International Pictures uh, in the late 60s and, and 70s. Um, yeah, he was one of the, the directors on this thing. Monty Hellman was was another. What's weird about this movie, though, is that you know, knowing the production history of it, how it like nobody really knew what this movie was about and was sort of made up as they kept you know creating more footage for it. They sort of jammed it all together into a whole and it's it's a little bit fascinating to watch. Like, I, I think there's sort of a dream logic to it necessarily because it's, a, you know, can possibly make sense out of all these disparate parts and, and, you know, put them into a, into a hole that, that makes a whole lot of sense. But I actually kind of enjoyed watching this thing. I like this too. It was actually fun. I mean, it's like a good little Gothic horror movie. It has, I mean, like Nicholson is, is fun. He plays this, uh, like, French lieutenant pretty straight, you know, so it's kind of just fun to see him not being Jack Nicholson. <laughs> the worst part about this was that it, it felt too long. Like it felt like they shot too much footage. <laughs> I felt like it could have been shorter, but honestly it, you know, because of how it was made, it, it might've been necessary to become as convoluted as it was just because what they had didn't make any sense. But I think this would actually be a decent remake. I mean, there's been so many versions of this over and over and over again. So it's not like it needs specifically a remake, but I think there's, there's like a, there's a good story here. It's just a little bit buried. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know what you would be remaking if you remade this film. It's, it's poishness. It also steals a lot from Dracula and, you know, there's a lot of just, you know, things stolen from, from all sorts of, horror sources over the years and it all kind of fits together in this strange way to make it to give it a, a kind of a fun atmosphere i don't know i that's what would be fun to remake it's just that like <laughs> the fun parts are really good and there's like a bizarre twist ending where you know it's just like this you don't know who anyone is anymore because the person you thought was this person is actually that person who's actually 
taking the, you know, the haunting of the other person, you know, it's like this sort of weird, again, it's convoluted, but it, it would have worked if it had been paced better. Like if, if all of these things got revealed sort of more slowly over time and not just in like the last half hour, like the last, let's actually 15 minutes of expository dialogue, <laughs> then it would have actually been fun. Like it would have just been a good, like Gothic horror film. So. And Dick Miller's great. He, the, uh, a star of just about every Roger Corman movie. We, we've done uh, Little Shop of Horrors. He's he's in that. And, uh, you know, everybody knows Dick Miller, but him playing a Eastern European butler in this castle with his Brooklyn accent is really pretty entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fact that there's so much in this movie that shouldn't work uh, all jammed together that it, it somehow does work. But the best scene is in the end when Jack Nicholson kisses this woman who then like turns into a corpse the way that that nazi does in indiana jones yeah, like total face, face melt. melt. <laughs> and this the look on his face when he realizes what he just kissed is just like it's worth <laughs> watching the entire film for that alone yeah. well after these uh you know four attempts to make you know real legitimate uh, feature films francis finally got his chance in 1963. And uh, do you want to tell us about the, the first, I think what, what Coppola considers his actual first feature, Dementia 13. Yeah, Dementia 13 was actually made also made with leftover Corman money and it, this film actually got re-released uh, in a director's cut by Coppola in two, 2021 so really recently and I was reading about you know there's a handful of articles about it so uh, you know it was interesting because it, apparently Coppola didn't even have a full script it was just basically like hey Corman was like we're in Ireland you want to you know just shoot some stuff <laughs> you know the way that Corman did and so he had to like kind of come up with the script on the on the fly as they were shooting it within like a couple of days. So considering that, I mean, like, you know, this movie is is a bit it's also weird. It's also convoluted. It, parts of it don't make any sense, but um, it's it's pretty fun. It's another little gothic horror film. Uh, it, it opens on this woman, Louise, and her husband in a rowboat. And he tells her that that she's never going to see anything of his mother's inheritance if they get a divorce. And lucky for her, he then promptly dies of a heart attack, <laughs> like on the spot. And um, so she tosses his body overboard and then writes on his typewriter to his mom about how he's going to be out of town for a long time. And then she goes to stay with the mother, who is one Lady Halloran who lives on an estate in Ireland along with her sons, the other sons, Richard and Billy and Richard, Richard's a bimboy girlfriend who the mother already hates. And from here on out, the whole thing just gets like very, it's like a weird Gothic tale. As I said, the mother is obsessed with her dead child uh, who is um, not, not the, the son that died, but a, um, his sister, Kathleen, Nobody ever finds out, as far as I can remember, nobody finds out that the original, that Louise's husband who died on the boat is dead. They just think he's not there. <laughs> they never question it. They're just like, yep, he's just not here. 
Um, but so she's obsessed with her daughter that died, Kathleen, and she died when she was very young. She drowned in a lake on this estate while playing with Billy, the other son. And, uh, she does this, the mother does this whole ritual where they all reenact her funeral, uh, on the day that she was buried, Kathleen's funeral. And the mother faints in front of the grave and all of this. Like, it's like, they don't, she, she won't allow anyone else there, but her sons and they're all, they, they know she's a little bit crazy, but it's her mom, their mom. So they don't want to do anything. And, uh, there's also this creepy family psychiatrist who I instantly recognized as Alex, the writer from clockwork orange. <laughs> yeah. Patrick McGee, Patrick McGee, who's, who's great. And you know, the most suspicious man you've ever <laughs> met in your life. He's fantastic in this. The, the movie really get you know, kicks up a notch or, or two or three when, when he shows up. Yes. Agreed. And I mean, for the rest of this movie, basically Louise, um, she gets kind of schemy and decides to take advantage of uh, the mother's superstition and which I guess she's just trying to naturally kill the mother off so that she can get this inheritance before anyone realizes the son has died. She pretends that the the ghost of Kathleen is trying to communicate with her and she goes as far as to try and put Kathleen's toys in the same lake with like weights so that they'll pop up randomly. But while she's down in the lake, she sees the body of Kathleen dun, dun, dun. underwater lying in her, in her watery grave. Yeah. And she freaks out and then, and then the movie kicks in like, then the movie gets fun and interesting. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to spoil and it. Gruesome. It, it actually is. There's, there's some fairly bloody moments that, uh, that shock a little bit in this. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly inspired by Psycho, you know, trying to duplicate some of the some of the shocks from that movie. But it's you know, it's also gothic in a way that Psycho is not. So it's it's got a different feel to it. I, one twist that I will spoil is that the main character gets killed halfway through this movie. And that's kind of fun because you're like, oh, I guess <laughs> I guess all that information we got about her problems is, is just gone. Doesn't doesn't even matter. But um, but it's it's a good twist because it you know, you don't you you genuinely don't know where it's going to go from there. And it actually becomes a better film, you know, it, at, by that point, once it sort of streamlines what it, what it's actually doing here. So although it is kind of fun to follow Louise, who's this you know amoral gold digger and and actually be on her side like she's this American and this uh, in Ireland, not really like you know, understanding these weird rituals that this family is doing. And you do end up kind of being on her side a bit. So it's, uh, I don't know. He's Coppola definitely puts some thought into certain aspects of this movie. He didn't really know how to make it all come together into a, a satisfying whole, but it's got, it's got some great moments. It, it really does. I mean, the, the, the stuff I really liked about this is the whole thing like plot about generational trauma there there's a lot of like leaning on psychiatry in this that is actually kind of neat and interesting and creepy well yeah i mean all all of coppola's movies are about family extended family and the pressures that are put on you by by the members of your family yeah any anybody looking for uh for signs of a of, of the birth of, a, of an auteur can can find elements of what Coppola does throughout his career in this movie for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, just having like a scene where a character is just recalling a really creepy dream without actually even showing you the dream is actually it's like a good scare. I mean, there's a couple of good there's like that terror. There's like a couple of terrifying children's toys <laughs> <laughs> that jump out at you that are honestly the the cheapest of they're not nearly the most creepy thing in this movie that actually, as you said, it gets kind of creepy. Actually, it gets pretty gruesome, especially towards the end. It gets like straight up. I would be really curious to see what the non-director's cut is like, because that was Corman basically got the final edit. And I think that he told Coppola, uh, this is too gruesome. We have to take some of this out. And some of the scenes that we saw in the end of this, I, I've only ever seen in like really low budget, like Canadian horror films. Slasher movies. Yeah. Like, you know, stuff that would never, ever even like stuff that's too gruesome for you know, a lot of films. I mean, I get. I guess in this world of saw films, we've gotten pretty gruesome and mainstream. But I don't know. I was. I was impressed, especially for the '60s. I was impressed. Early '60s. Yeah. It's not a great movie, but it's it's fun. And as you said, you can tell that's that there's something there. For how on the fly this movie was made, it's impossible not to be impressed by it. Right. You you can't call it great. You know, you can you can see some hints of of uh, Coppola's greatness in there, but uh, it's it's you know, it's American international product and not much more. Actually, after uh, making Dementia 13, Coppola got uh, got tapped by Warner Brothers to do some script doctoring and some script writing. So he um, I think it was another reference, U- UCLA reference they were, they were saying oh, we need somebody to adapt this 20-minute uh, Tennessee Williams one-act play uh, into a full-length film. Coppola said, oh, I love Tennessee Williams. I'll do it. And uh, this property is condemned was the result of that. Not a great movie, but it has its moments. And uh, he also got involved in the making of the, the huge World War II drama, Is Paris Burning?, and it just, um, you know, went through so many rewrites and the, the the French government had to, you know, make sure that he was portraying de Gaulle in the right way. And and so it was just a big nightmare job for him. He was just sucked into writing Is Paris Burning for a year or something. You know, he kept having to go through rewrites. And while he was writing to keep himself sane, he was, wrote a fun script, you know, the script of something that he would want to direct himself. He had recently read the book you're a big boy now written by uh, david benedictus and he said oh this would make a fun movie i'm gonna well the studio is paying me to do all these rewrites of is paris burning i'm gonna i'm gonna write you're a big boy now so he did he just a- a- adapted this comic novel it's a just you know coming of age story sort of absurdist broadly comic book and when uh, and then he brought the finished script to warner brothers and and said i'd like to make this movie and uh when they realized that he had written it while he was on the the screenwriter's payroll for the other movie, they said, well, you, you wrote this while working for us. So we already own it. So they, they figured they were already halfway invested in this movie. So they gave him a small budget to make his first big studio film, but a, a you know, small scale, big studio film. You're a big boy now. Well, you never can tell. So well that I gotta stop and say, how do you do? I know it's a long shot, but just... 
watching what she's got I'm hoping that my judgment's true In 1966, the main character, Bernard, is played by Peter Kastner, who didn't do a whole lot else. Um, but because he was an unknown, the Warner Brothers wanted him to get uh, some bigger names in there and some of the other roles. So um, Geraldine Page and Rip Torn and Julie Harris are all in there. Uh, Elizabeth Hartman, who is best known as the blind girl in uh, Patch of Blue, the Sidney Poitier movie, uh, he cast as the uh, sort of femme fatale mod model who captivates Bernard. And when he sees her come into the New York public library where he works, he's uh, one of the pages and he's, so he's on roller skates in the, in the 80 miles of, of stacks uh, in, in the New York public library. And he got the job because his father is some, some important person in the library. It's, it's actually really fun to see these enormous stacks um, that you never get to see if you go into the library uh, yourself as a patron, but uh, as a library person, it, it fascinated me anyway. But uh, but yeah, so he's captivated by Barbara Darling, this go-go dancer, actress, model who uh, who he sees one time in the library, and uh, even though there's a uh, you know nice girl played by Karen Black who uh, clearly has is interested in him, and he seems to like her just fine. He can't keep his mind off of Barbara Darling. So the, uh, and he's, you know, his, his friend played by Tony Bill Rafe, uh, is, is giving him advice on, uh, how to, how to not be a virgin anymore. And, you know, it's that kind of movie. It's, it's got, it constantly has sex on its mind. You don't see very much in this movie, but you know, every scene is, is basically, you know, either somebody terrified of sex or trying to figure out how to have sex or not being able to have sex. And, and Bernard is, uh, you know, his mother is really domineering and really doesn't want him to to fool around with girls at all. And uh, yeah, it's it's just it, it actually really reminded me of The Knack, yeah. the Richard Lester movie that he made between the the two Beatles movies that he made about this this virgin boy who's getting advice from this sexually experienced older guy how to pick up girls, which is actually you know goes straight back to the Bellboy that. Coppola's film there where the bellboy is reading books on how to talk to how to score with women so horny old Francis is uh can't can't ever get too too far from that subject matter but yeah it, I it's it's a pretty enjoyable absurd film and it's got that kind of quick-paced energy of the knack he said I think the knack actually came out after this but Coppola said he wasn't influenced a bit by Lester's work on Hard Day's Night making this and you can see that a lot of wordplay in this. Uh, Bernard will see initials and and assign you know ridiculous meanings to those initials, and and it's such a a juvenile male perspective in this film that's a little hard to watch. I mean the yeah, I mean I, I have a feeling that that's what you're you're going to point out first about this film is just how how male it is, and there's not much uh, in the way of the you know females really get the shaft in this thing. But it's also a whole lot of fun to watch. This is like a cool movie in its structure and the way that it's filmed. Like, I love how often it is on location everywhere around New York City. That's like really awesome. It reminded me a bit, actually, of that Irving Kirshner of Fine Madness movie 
in some mm-hmm. sense. Also about a horny guy just like, you know, going through life without caring about whether or not he's a nice person. Uh, and it came out two weeks after this movie came out. But um, and yeah, I mean, like, I like that kind of Richard Lester look. I mean, this felt very much like a youth film of the 60s. There's like a lot of that kind of quick editing, you know, quick paced, raunchy humor. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it Coppola's <laughs> again, I say this I like I think Coppola is is, you know, a genius director. Um, but his understanding of women has always been kind of shaky. And especially when he was younger, I mean, it's like extra overt. Like it took him multiple decades to get to a point where he could write women that made any sense. And I think that a lot of that had to do with then working with more women, uh, you know, writing his scripts or something and maybe having daughters. I don't know. It took him a long time. And the problem with this movie really, as you said, is that it is too specifically male. The main, the main character is just so off-putting if you're not a guy, you know, like he's just so nasty to Karen Black. She says, you know, actually I knew you in school and, you know, she's very cute. You know, she's, she's pursuing him. She's very friendly to him. She catches him literally with his tie caught in like a, one of those like, nickel peeper machines in yeah in a in in like a you know times square and she helps him you know get out and so you know here and he's embarrassed but you know she's very kind to him and then he says to her like finally he's like i don't remember you at all why is that you know and and then finally at the end it's like he's as he's getting on a bus he goes oh wait i do remember you you were you were like fat and ugly (laughs) or she's getting on the bus and the doors close and then you know she looks clearly like disappointed by what he just said <laughs> i thought she looked happy that he remembered, remembered her, her even That's, though it was in that i mean but the thing is way. either way she continues to pursue him like after that and yeah there's even no when, reason at all for her to have any interest in this guy like she's just a plot convenience i mean i love karen black she's not doing her sort of over the top karen black thing in this at all but she's, you know, just a sweet, nice girl and uh, is, is great in that role. But you don't get any insight into her at all. Like, she's just the nice girl and, and nothing else. Yeah. I actually think Elizabeth Hartman as Barbara Darling, like, she's she's this vampy, trampy, you know, gorgeous woman who, you know, thinks that, you know, is, is totally self-absorbed and sort of plays with Bernard once he uh, she finds out that he has this thing for her he he writes her a letter and she said oh here's here's a boy that i can that i can dominate and uh she's yeah she's just a, a horrible person but she's actually a whole lot of fun to watch in this movie if you can uh you know get over the sort of misogynistic overtones of her character i, I think she's she is she's first build she's top build in this movie i think because you know, people remembered her from patch of blue and and she you know was she she definitely is not the star of this film, but uh, they they had to get that uh, that name on the marquee. But she's she's also I think she's she's the most fun thing about it. I didn't like her. I thought she was also <laughs> obnoxious. I mean, it's just that she's because she it's just the Madonna whore thing. It's like you know she's just this manipulative psychotic bitch who you know when she finally gets him and manipulates him into bed, she then teases him because he can't get it up because there's too much pressure. 
and then you know immediately you know kicks him out like you know like berates him and then wants him back and then berates it's just like it's not it doesn't make any sense i mean she could have been an interesting character like she's she's introduced in an interesting way and the second that she gets involved with our main character she just gets lame paired with him being just like the graduate scene about being there to humiliate everyone while he's then lusting over someone else. It just, you know, it just, it's, it's too much. But the one thing I will say is that like, if I can turn my brain off and completely dissociate, like this does have some good, like early twenties, you know, virgin learning to spread his wings and just like live vibes. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I like that sort of that ending where he talks about like, I've been in the custody of my parents and all I've gotten was guilt and insecurity you know, somebody looking to find themselves and looking to strike out and looking to break out of their comfort zone and then getting beaten down by the world is like a great plot, <laughs> you know, like in general. And apparently this is based on a, a British um, satire, this the book. And the book apparently was was much more satirical and, and much less sincere. And I think Coppola, I mean, it, this movie is, it's, you know, it's cynical, but Coppola he he really seems to relate to the main character a lot. You have to relate to this main character to really get something out of this um, in a, in a real way. But again, like just as even a movie in 1966, it's just, it's very cool to see something that seems visually ambitious and, you know, like it's pushing the envelope as far as what, what a movie should look like. And so in that way, this is kind of really neat. There's also an argument to be made that this is the very first new Hollywood film. I mean, it's definitely the first studio film made by a film school brat, which is what Coppola was and you know, Scorsese and, and uh, Bogdanovich and all those people um, who, who'd go on to sort of be the faces of, of new Hollywood. You know, Arthur Penn was was making things like you know, Mickey one and, and that sort of thing that, that I guess they're more forerunners of the, the new Hollywood thing. Um, but he was, you know, he was brought up in the studio system. He did a lot of TV productions. So he, he was not a film school guy at all. So that's, that's one reason to, to consider this the, the first new Hollywood film. And it's all, it's all shot on location, just like, uh, you know, this, this realism that new Hollywood is famous for. The and, automat. Uh, you get to see the automat. Yeah. You get to see a lot. There's a lot of Times Central Park, the, yeah, I mean, it's Macy's. All... They're in Macy's at one point, and the escalators in Macy's, big deal. A lot of time is spent in, in Times Square, in the, the, the sleazy pre-Disney Times Square. And the subway. The subway was... Re- I always loved seeing the subway in movies, even though it was that that one weird racist-ass joke that uh, I yeah. fully don't understand, and I feel like also ties into the next film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, very of its time. It sort of, I think, felt like a, yeah, I, I don't even want to get into the joke. Yeah, I don't want to get I, into I, it either. I, Though there is, I will say that it, it, the the setup for this joke is horrible and offensive. The, the idea of basically a main character that kind of does these little word games in his head and then has a fantasy that we then cut to the fantasy to see what he's thinking of uh, is, again, that's like, that's what makes this movie kind of cool. But that unfortunately is like a terrible <laughs> yeah yeah those, it's a but... it's a joke that isn't 
clearly not meant to be offensive. It's supposed to be sort of thinking outside the box in terms of uh, race, but it, it, it comes off really badly. But it also, I mean, I also think this movie's, it's also got that sort of, well, it's not a bummer of an ending, but but things things don't go the way that he well it, it's not even that much of a bummer of an ending but it's it's got uh you know it's got a lot of the hallmarks of of new hollywood where it's just these sort of regular people and the, and the the storyline doesn't go in a in a straightforward direction it's sort of half influenced by by some of the, the you know french new wave stuff that was was going on and uh you know the quick cutting and the it's it's you know sort of this this sort of perfect compromise between sort of European art film and and you know American studio product that uh, so it yeah here's here's where it begins says Bart says me uh, we also didn't mention the Eleven Spoonful soundtrack <laughs> yeah that's a lot of fun which is really fun even if some of the songs are like I like very strange lyrics <laughs> yeah and really on the nose <laughs> but uh, but fun. But really fun. Yeah. I was I was like excited. I mean the cat as you said, the cast is like stacked in this. It's worth this is worth a watch, I think, even though I don't love it and I have a lot of issues with it. It's it's interesting. This is an interesting movie. Yeah. I mean, get yourself into uh, an adolescent boy mindset <laughs> yeah. before watching this film and, and you'll really enjoy it because it is it's a lot of fun. It just uh has has not aged particularly well. Well, neither is our next film. <laughs> <laughs> By design, though. Which is Finian's Rainbow from 1968. something I, th- let's give some slight context for this uh this was again you know 1968 the hollywood system is is desperately failing they want to get that youth market thus they they chose coppola to direct this and they also chose a play from like 1947 <laughs> <laughs> with that you know, was successful at the time because it was like pushing some some boundaries about with its it has a focus on on you know social justice focus and it was a big Broadway hit and people liked it. Again, in 1968, <laughs> the studio was like, let's let's try and adapt this. Well, this is also coming off of the Sound of Music that was such an enormous hit that that sort of gave Hollywood the idea that, oh no, our, our system still works. We can still make these big lavish musicals and, and have them be hits. There's nothing wrong with our formula, but uh, clearly there was. And uh, the fact that they tried to make Finian's rainbow in 1968 is, is clear evidence of that. Now, if you're anything like me, you don't know anything about Finian's rainbow. <laughs> and so I, I watched this completely blind uh, only knowing that it was, you know, knowing its reputation, but um, the plot 
is that we have Finian McLonergan played by Fred Astaire, and he is traveling the entire United States with his daughter, Sharon, played by Petula Clark, and they're in search of the Rainbow Valley in the grand state of Mississippi. <laughs> Why do you ask? Well, he has stolen a pot of gold from a leprechaun, and he heard that if he buried it in the Rainbow Valley, that it would double in size because something, something rainbows. So, duh. In the Rainbow Valley, we see that uh, the cops are stirring up shit because Woody Mahoney owes several months in back tax and they want to repossess his home. But the whole town rallies and they say that he's going to be back any day now with a bunch of money. And we know this because his mute sister, Susan, who can only communicate through the power of interpretive dance, told us so. And Well, they're sharecroppers, so that it's not just Woody's home it's they all own this property yes and woody on on this property uh you know woody has a buddy and a business partner named howard who is working with him to develop the world's first mentholated tobacco and boy oh boy when they figure out how to make that thing burn question mark that's that's the problem and they have it but it doesn't burn it's fireproof they call it, they say it's like asbestos <laughs> <laughs> Uh, their, uh, their ship's going to come in. That's going to be their number. And, uh, I should mention that Howard is actually black because Rainbow Valley is an integrated town, which is a big old problem for Senator Billboard Rockins, <laughs> who is openly racist and actively punishing the citizens of Rainbow Valley for daring to not enslave each other. And yes, race relations are actually the main focus of this entire film, which is funny because although I also failed to mention there is a straight up leprechaun named Og who is hot on Finian's tail and desperate to get his gold back because he's turning mortal without it. So if all of that doesn't sound like a smash hit for 1968, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yes, there is a scene where the racist senator forces the one black character to act like 1930s, you know, black slave caricature. That is actually the funniest scene in the entire film, unfortunately. <laughs> and that same senator gets turned black via a wish, the leprechaun gold, in which we have Keenan Wynn, who plays senator rawkins in blackface for the entire second half of this film and yes there is a break in the middle of this movie an intermission because it is that goddamn long it's not that long like two hours and 20 minutes or something and i mean maybe this isn't the place to get into the politics of blackface but like the racist joke in uh, you're a big boy now it's there's is definitely something well-meaning about the blackface in this movie. So before you dig your own grave here, I will just <laughs> say that 1947, when this came out, it was progressive uh, for a Broadway play. You know, it was basically, you know, this was, this was a time where being there, there were no uh, parts for black people on Broadway, except for, you know, the slaves, you know, servants, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, in like Southern melodrama, you know what I mean? Like there were no parts. So this was like a, a big deal for having a racially mixed cast. So, you know, I think that this is a great example of, as you said, white 
white people, well-intentioned blackface to get the point across that racism is terrible. And, you know, it's funny. I was looking actually at the reviews of the original play when it came out and it was all very positive reviews, but people, some of the reviewers were even saying like, you know, well, but it kind of hits you over the head with the the racism stuff. And you're like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I don't know why that's really the point of this, but it is. So, I mean, yeah, this is, but, you know, think about stuff that was a hot button issue even 10 years ago today. I mean, even five years ago and, and how much it either doesn't matter or has been widely accepted since. And I feel like, you know, we still and there's people still get in trouble for blackface, not realizing even when it's satirically done or, you know, is meant to be good. So I don't you know, like the whole thing is it's it's misguided. <laughs> well, when this movie sticks to its social themes uh you know the integrated sharecroppers and and all of that stuff yes even the blackface i i actually think that this is a pretty fascinating movie and i wish it stuck to that stuff but then there's a stupid leprechaun played by tommy Steele who's so over the top and it's it just you know, wrecks anything that's interesting about this movie. I had seen this movie before and I didn't like it. And mostly it was because all I remembered was Tommy Steele just mugging and being obnoxious and, you know, trying to steal back his gold from Fred Astaire and the, the, you know, the more subtle, you know, quote unquote, realistic stuff having to do with the, with this integrated town trying to, you know, fight for their rights is, uh, you know, sort of, took took a background because it's not as like colorful and obnoxious as as this leprechaun but watching it a second time i actually i mean the songs in this show are fantastic uh old devil moon is from this show everybody's heard frank sinatra's version of that and and all the songs i think are really good and wrong (laughs) (laughs) i i i I love this score. I, I think these are these are great songs. Um, it turns out that we have really different taste in uh, in musical scores. I'll just let what me before. Okay, Bart like gave this four stars on Letterbox, and I gave this like one star on Letterbox. And I love musicals, and this to me was like pulling all of my teeth out. I, this was like the worst of musicals that I have ever seen. I thought this was horrendous, and I hated every single song. I hated every single moment and every single person who was in this. <laughs> there was nothing redeemable about this film whatsoever for me. Uh, Old Devil Moon is the only decent song, and even that is like they they do it like five times. Oh. Petula Clark is great in this movie. Her songs are really good. I, you know, all the songs are good. I know the score fairly well, so that actually adds a whole lot of appeal to most musicals is knowing the music ahead of time, but... What about just watching Fred Astaire, like the 70 year old Fred Astaire, who's still like lighter than air, like his legs are are moving without ever touching the ground. Like he's he's amazing to watch still. Fred Astaire is is always impressive, but he's not in this film. He's in this film for all of five minutes. I have absolutely no idea why it's named after him. I think the, the original play, he is a minor character and they beefed up the role a bit because they got Fred Astaire to play. Finian. but here's yeah a, here's another thing uh, about the, the changes that coppola made to this i mean apparently the studio had wanted to update it for 1968 as far as like the plot 
and the characters and like what they did for a living. They wanted them to be on like a hippie commune or something that was, that would have been just as terrible as, as what Coppola pushed for, which was to keep it the same, which was a mistake too, (laughs) because everything about this is a mistake in my opinion. But um, the changes that Coppola did make were to make it just creepy and misogynistic things like having Woody basically assault Sharon in the woods. And then, uh, you know, that was their big love scene. Like that was horrendous or the stupid leprechaun though. I actually, I want to talk about the leprechaun because I had the opposite. I, ra- I would have rather have seen the leprechaun than this shoved in race stuff that, that to me just felt like had absolutely no business being in a, in this, in this movie. <laughs> but that's what makes it interesting. And I feel like there's such a divide in this movie. Like there's so pretty much all the leprechaun scenes is, are clearly shot on a sound stage with these fake trees and this fake grass and no real light at all. And then all the other scenes are shot. If not a, on location, they're shot in, you know, in the back lot. So you've got, natural sunlight and real trees and uh and there's just such a divide between the two parts of this movie that i, I it really feels like i don't know that that it's capturing an important moment in time like the whole transition from old hollywood to new hollywood is right here you're you're watching it in action in this movie and it's pretty fascinating for that reason too i i love the the how bifurcated this film is you know i was i was hooked on it like i i couldn't it flew by for me because i was just loving the songs and loving watching how strange this thing is that it even exists and i don't know i i had a good time the second time through well i was saying the leprechaun has a whole song about how he'll like screw anyone as long as it has boobs Who then and then Susan gets a wish and she gets a voice and she can't sing at all. I mean, the, Susan. Okay, so here's really my my biggest issues with this was Susan. <laughs> if I could have murdered Susan, if you told me like Jenna, you pay me a thousand bucks and you can go murder Susan, I would do it. Like I cannot cannot stand this stupid little girl dancing around to interpretive dance because she can't speak. Like I will rather I would take both of my eyes out. It was just like the most cloying, obnoxious and and to then mix this level of like magic wonderland, you know, leprechaun with like, yeah, we're making like menthol cigarettes or whatever the hell they're making with this like weird sheriff story who is like not even like they're basically the solve for racism in this movie is that you wish it away and then you wish it away again. Because to wish someone to have black skin doesn't stop him from being racist. So you have to make another wish and get him to change his entire personality. And only then can we solve racism. So it's like there isn't even like I, that's that's my problem. It's not that even I'm I'm offended at how dated it is. It's that it doesn't make any goddamn sense. No, like, it doesn't solve any problems. It just tricks the racists so that the, the people in the in this town get what they want. But, but like no... as an audience member is your I mean, I guess if you're coming in as like super, super bigoted and then you see yourself on stage as a villain, then that is worth something. But like I that why why would you do it in this way? Like, why would you ever mix all of these things together? Like, I just I cannot get past that. That's I think that's exactly what I find so interesting about this movie. What really grabbed me. What about I find it. interesting 
about this movie is is how Coppola is is actually staging these songs. Even though I hated all the songs, <laughs> um, it was cool to see him doing stuff that was interesting. Like instead of like for versus like Camelot, where I love Camelot, but they all stand still and the camera is still, nothing's moving, and they sing an entire song in like a beautiful backdrop, and it's just the most boring thing on the planet. With this one, you have people singing crummy songs, but like. They're, they're dancing throughout them. The camera is even moving. If they're standing still, the camera rotates around them. There's a great uh, scene where they're, I don't even remember the song. Maybe you know where they're to, I think it's the leprechaun and, and the little girl I hate. And they're uh, jumping from like a side to side across a stream and it's shot from below. So you sort of see them hopping back and forth and then over the camera. When I'm not near the girl I love, I'm, Probably. I love the girl I'm near. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But, um, but you know, that's, there's something there. There's something to be said for that. Like, I think that I, I as much as I, I hate this, I can't say that I hate it because it's poorly directed. I mean, I guess that Coppola definitely made some decisions that I think were terrible, but, um, I just, I, I my main problem is just with like the, the general conceit of this entire thing. <laughs> I can't get past it. Yeah, it's it's just so out of time in the weirdest way, and and I think that's great. But the um, I think it's actually Coppola had to get really creative with the uh, with the song and dances because Hermes Pan choreographed maybe half of these numbers, not even half, I think, and but was complaining that he can't, you know, he can't have anybody do any doing any real dancing on this wet, you know earth like he needs a sound stage to really choreograph these things and just was complaining about coppola's methods these like you know this, this young kid who would, would, didn't go through the whole apprenticeship thing in the studios and doesn't know what he's doing and and they just really didn't get along so only about half the songs are choreographed and then coppola sort of had people doing other things you know like doing tug of war while singing songs or just had other activities, people cleaning out their houses during a, during a song um, rather than having to make them song and dance numbers because he couldn't choreograph this stuff. He had Fred Astaire do, um, do some of his own choreography, you know, sort of improvise some stuff. So there's some, some good stuff there. Like when he's uh, he's dancing on the crates, I think that's all just Fred Astaire winging it and, uh, impressing the hell out of everybody just uh you know making it up as he goes along but uh i i, I like it though it, it I, I like the variety of, of how the the uh this the song and dance numbers were staged i look forward to a day where i want to watch finian's rainbow but right now i think this actually beats out paint your wagon for my most hated musical we cannot agree on musicals <laughs> we both love musicals but we can't agree on which ones are good this this Harbor Lane score is like one of the greatest in Broadway history, and you're you're saying you don't like the songs. I, there, I couldn't tell you a single one. <laughs> How are things in Glockamora? Come on, I look th- to the this rainbow. Is like, th- this this movie if makes this me want to commit a, some, a hate crime against the Irish people. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Listen, <laughs> listen to Frank Sinatra's cast recording where he just gets all his his buddies on on uh, his reprise label to to sing a bunch of songs from Finian's Rainbow. It's great. You'll you'll get to love the songs. But uh, yeah, anyway, there, there's no 
no need to dwell on this uh, this movie that uh, you know Coppola loved having this experience, being able to do a big uh, you know, Hollywood musical, and and knew his father would be proud of him, uh, sort of following in his footsteps. But uh, kind of said never again after after this. Yeah, uh, because it was very poorly received. <laughs> he and then he he disowned it. He loved it so much he disowned the film. He you know basically was so embarrassed because it flopped so hard. Uh, I, I got one um, quote here from uh, like a Times review of the movie that says, it is clear that this classical stage musical has wrinkled into senility. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Co Coppola, you know, he was, interestingly, he was writing the script for the conversation on the set of this. So something good did come out of this. I think he must have been writing Patton also. Or actually, he'd been working on Patton um, for a while. I think it was he, he finished that in 65 and the film wasn't produced in, until 1970. And he uh, and he got an Academy Award for for his script for Patton. And that's when Hollywood really started taking him seriously. But the year before that happened, the year before Patton came out, Coppola got to make, you know, what's what some might say is the first Coppola movie worth watching the rain people came out in 1969 it got mixed reviews at the time but i think it's pretty much universally liked this one now. this also flopped at the time but yeah but, yeah, but just because it's it's a you know quiet character movie that's a bummer and just not not what people wanted to see they didn't want to see this movie about a, a woman who finds out she's pregnant and and leaves her husband because she doesn't want to be trapped in this as a wife and mother and you know she serves it's been sort of independent and free spirited all her life. And you got married out of love, but then realized that, you know, that she she wants her freedom. And she's this this baby is going to be the last straw keep keeping her trapped. Um, so she just takes off. Her name is uh, is Natalie Ravenna, played by Shirley Knight. We, we don't get a whole lot of uh, exposition about what's happening here we sort of find out as the movie progresses we just see her get out of bed in the morning and and leave her husband you know stop by her parents house to say that she's taking off and them not understanding and uh you know her leaving anyway and sort of just heads west and stops in pennsylvania and goes to a, a motel and uh the next day as she continues west with no particular destination in mind she decides to pick up a hitchhiker uh, this this strapping man that she sees and thinks, oh, it might be fun to have a fling with this guy. She pulls over and it's uh, James Kahn playing uh, Killer Kilgannon, a college football player who's brain damaged during one of his uh, games. And uh, they sort of kept him on at the college raking leaves, but then uh, said, you know, we can't we can't be supporting this guy who can't really do much of anything. Give him a bunch of money and, and sent sent him on his way. And she picks him up and she keeps he keeps showing her this like 
envelope with the thousand dollars in it that they gave him uh, to to leave, and she uh, doesn't realize at first that he you know has got some some mental problems. He's he's super sweet, and he you know he understands what what she's saying to him, and uh, you know it isn't until she tries to seduce him in uh, in her hotel room that she realized, oh, this this guy isn't quite right. And Well, she uh, tries to drop him off with his, his ex-girlfriend, who is so nasty to her, him. Yeah, he's, he said he was heading to his, his girlfriend's place to work for her father, who, like, back when he was a football hero, said, oh, yeah, come work for me anytime. He's got, like, a drive-in theater, and he, and uh, Killer thinks that he can he can work there, but the, the girlfriend is like, get rid of him, Dad. He can't, he's, he's stupid. He can, you know, really, just really awful. But his mental issues are such that he doesn't really recognize that people are being awful to him. That really frustrates Natalie, too. But she realizes that she's if she doesn't sort of make sure that killer finds a place to to be some people who care about him to can sort of take care of him and keep an eye on him, that she's that she's sort of responsible for him. And she's resentful of the fact that she can't sort of get rid of this guy. He becomes a burden to her. But uh but you know, she also just doesn't doesn't want anything to happen to this sweet lummox, and uh, she keeps heading west with him uh, as her passenger. And yeah, it's you can sort of tell that this movie was was made up as it as it went along. I mean, Coppola had a script when he started shooting, but uh, because of the way it was shot, where it's just him and a small crew in this big uh, you know RV, um, you know, heading across the country and and filming this uh, this woman on her road trip. Uh, to to nowhere um, that they sort of took advantage of uh, of locations that they would spot along the way and little you know little bits of business uh, came up or if you know, something struck Coppola in the moment he would put into the script so it's you know it's it's uh, it's episodic this movie there's definitely an, an overriding theme to this movie and it's sort of ind- independent woman coming to accept that part of growing up, part of maturing is, is accepting responsibility for others. And it's, I've jokingly referred to this movie as a pregnancy anxiety film along the lines of Rosemary's baby, but it's, it's definitely not a horror film like that. It's just a, a kind of a quiet character study. Things do get uh, violent towards the end when uh, Robert Duvall as a, as a police cop shows up and uh, and Natalie wants to have a fling with him. But yeah, it, it's mostly just a quiet bummer of a movie that I really enjoy. I've seen it a couple of times. This was my first time watching it, so it was very cool to to finally see it. And it was also cool to see it after, right after James Caan died. I mean, not cool, but I mean, it was a a really interesting performance for James Caan. I've never seen him not be like a total jerk. Bully, yeah. <laughs> with, you know, with a lot, I say with love. But um, so it was cool to see him in this sort of quiet. And also it was like, you know, I like the, the pre-Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson movies. You're like, oh, wow. I didn't know that he could even be this way. So it was that was really fun and interesting. And, and I didn't really know the plot going in. So the reveal of what was wrong with him was sort of slowly revealed to me. And I, it was I thought it was all well done. There's so many cool locations in this. And I think that the location, if this hadn't been shot the way that it was shot, I don't know that there's really anything here. Like, I don't think that the character stuff is strong enough. You see this sort of beginning of what then Coppola excels at. And I mean, certainly from the first films that we watched to the rain people is like such a huge improvement. 
but the locations are really like so compelling in this. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm I love all three of the central performances. They hold me completely. Like I, I don't I don't mind a sort of loosely plotted film, organic, and uh, I I think the the ending of this movie is a little sun, sudden and not particularly organic. But up until that point, it's all just sort of following these people, mostly her, Shirley Knight, and uh, and watching her sort of struggle and and be awful at times, but also be really caring and nurturing at other times. And, you know, she felt really real to me and, and just watching these three characters interact with each other and the, and you know, and the, and the people that they interacted with along the way, it got me. I think I, I did enjoy it more the second time. I think the first time I, I also didn't really know what to expect from it. And it, I felt a little bit underwhelmed, but knowing that that's, that's what this movie is, that it's, it's all just about, you know, this location photography and a lot of, you know, really carefully composed shots. A lot of, I love the scenes with her in the, in the phone booths, talking to her husband back home, like trying to explain why she left and, and him like taking different tactics to try and get her to come back. And, and the sound design, this is the first movie where Coppola worked with Walter Murch, uh, who, who, you know, did the sound design on, on the conversation and, and, uh, you know, lots of, Coppola movies and it's a really distinctive sound design and you hear the conversation on the phone through the phone and it's it's just there's the movie is so atmospheric and uh, I I love it here's the thing though you, you said that that Shirley Knight came across as real I have like a bit of an issue with her and and well with with the character Natalie really I think you know I think all the acting was was great here from everyone but um the character and I don't know now if I'm just being if I'm colored by having watched all the other 60s Coppola films, quite frankly, but like I and then also having watched this movie and then reading a bunch of reviews, um, you know, from either like Coppola biographers from uh, reviews, contemporary reviews uh, and even letterbox reviews and, and people saying that this is feminist and, and even like early feminist. And I, I don't see it at all. And I'm curious <laughs> If you feel that way, though, honestly, the way that you described it as a woman just learning that, you know, sometimes you have to take responsibility for others, I think is probably the more correct way to read this, if anything. But I could not call that feminist. Uh, I don't think that there's enough here because in the end, the whole movie is just and again, I, I feel like the problem here isn't that there the bits and pieces of feminism or what could be construed as feminism are here. A woman, you know, having uh, realizing that she um, is pregnant and might not want it and then leaving is, you know, at least that she has some agency. She's, you know, and something that her husband is clearly violently against and is very upset about. And he we get these glimpses of him. We think he seems like he's kind of abusive anyhow. And that's part of why she left, because she needed time to think about what she wanted to do. So all of that is like good and fine. But it's like in the end it just ends up being about how naturally she really is a wife and a mother like ho-hum you know it's all about i'll take care of you it's not about empathy it's just about motherhood <laughs> yeah i mean i don't think it's overall message is particularly feminist but i feel like it's willingness to to focus almost completely on this one woman who feels trapped in her life as a as a wife and pretend soon to be mother 
and just watching her trying to to escape that trap is you know bold and definitely a step in the right direction and any anything in the 60s that that wants to focus primarily on a single female character is is fine by me i mean i guess coppola does this again in godfather when Kay gets an abortion and doesn't bother asking and you know there were two to her very violent husband who then beats the shit out of her mm-hmm. but i don't i i just i i don't i i'm very skeptical with coppola and, and his female characters <laughs> yeah i mean it, it goes <laughs> It, it extends work. to to Peggy Sue too. Like that's another movie about a you know woman trying to escape the choices, the romantic choices, the the familial choices she made in her life, and ends up full circle, like accepting her her role as a wife and a mother. And I think Coppola loves women, but he maybe has trouble seeing them outside of of those particular roles as wife. And, and it mother. just it, it feels really glaring in the rain people because this is such a a character film and because there's really as you said only three main characters here or even arguably even two mm-hmm. and i feel like you get much more sympathy and, and empathy for khan especially when you see just how people are treating him versus natalie who we get a little bit when once robert duvall shows up but it's just the same it's just a repeat of what she has with her husband so it's not really any new information it's just people being like why are you traveling kind of stuff and we know why she's traveling. And so there's really nothing that's re- revealed about her. And then again, her relationship with Khan is also, it's, I don't know why she's trying to seduce Khan. You know, like there's just her, her motivations are not clear. And I, I didn't find her believable enough to carry this film in the way that I wanted it to, to be carried. You know what I mean? Like it just didn't, there was something about this that that rubbed me the wrong way. But I mean, the stuff that I really liked about it was I like that, I, you know, the scene where the, the ex-girlfriend of Khan's is, is just so overtly nasty to him, I thought was a great scene because it, it seemed it reflects what it was like in the 60s to be mentally handicapped in any sort of way. I mean, she talks about like, you know, she calls him the R word. She, he has a you know metal plate in his head and all this stuff. And, and he's seen as subhuman for doing what he was there to do, which was play ball. And it's also interesting too, when, you know, I find it always interesting when we talk about how much we've known for ages, how, how dangerous football is. <laughs> and yet here we are still playing it over and over again. But, um, you know, so, so the stuff with him, I thought was really interesting. And then once he finally, she tries to keeps trying to give him a job at, you know, at, at different places. And she finally lands him this job at this animal exotic animal farm on the side of the road, which is also this really creepy guy runs. And, you know, unfortunately he, he's, you know, Khan says, Oh, I have uh, or killer. I should be saying, Oh, I have uh, you know, a thousand dollars, which is like $8,000 in, in 2022 money, according to the, the old inflation calculator. So that's like a significant amount of money that he's just like, you know, show literally showing people that he has and i love where that that creepy guy who runs this exotic animal farm pulls over natalie and he's like you have any relationship to this guy like what's your deal and she's like i just want to help him and he's like but you you, you don't really care about him and, and she's like reluctantly has to say no because it's not untrue and then immediately he he takes this guy as, as a sucker i mean immediately you know like is it, out there to to screw him over 
But I love how so much of this movie is Shirley Knight, Natalie, observing all of these people and how they're interacting with Killer and sort of seeing herself in their behavior and thinking, oh, my God, is that that's that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm like. And I like I, I love the structure of the movie where it's like her sort of inner dialogue is is. Uh, you know, externalized like that, where we see what's going on with her by having her watch these people do these, you know, behave. And, the, and the, she's she's not a sympathetic character. And I think it's brave of this movie to, you know, decide to follow her or she's not a wholly sympathetic character, I should say. And I, I mean, I'm sure that has a lot to do with why this wasn't embraced at the time because she's not particularly likable. You know, she can be sweet at times, but she also, you know, will sometimes act rashly or, or get angry for no particular reason, you know, just like a real person. Imagine that, a woman behaving like like an actual person with, with mood swings and, and uh, you know, not being sure of, of themselves or, or knowing what they want exactly. Like, I, I, that's, that's why I think she's real and why she's a really good character. And lo- I love watching Shirley Knight's performance. See, that's all good and fine, but the problem is that there's no growth at all. I mean, like, she keeps having the same meltdown, and then she keeps coming back the same way, and there isn't, we don't see any change in her throughout the entire film. There's a reason why we don't see any change in Killer, and that's because he doesn't even recognize there's a change to be had, but she does, and as you're saying, she does see herself in these people, and she it makes her stop and question what she's doing, and yet she continually does the same thing over and over again. And I, I like I wish that there had been there could have been a way that you got to the same ending with her being more well intentioned, because instead what we get is her just constantly leaving him on the side of the road and then pulling over, you know, a mile down the road. And then so like for for this ending where he then shows up kind of, you know, killer shows up kind of magically to save her, which you don't even know how he got there really other than he just like was running after her car or God knows what, you know, so it, it gets a little bit too, it, it cheaps out on, on where her character really could be going, but I'm with you. Like I, I, I'm, I'm being a bit harsh on this. I like this movie. I thought it was really interesting. I would, you know, I'd watch it again. Um, it was, it was, I just wanted so much more from it because of, of how it sets up something that could have been so much more. And, you know, I think even like, you know, talking about Peggy Sue, like the, the thing with Peggy Sue is that that is dealing so much in nostalgia and, and so much it has like such broader topics that it's focused on that her own character failings don't really bug me because it, it's the movie isn't about her. And in The Rain People, the movie is about Natalie. Like there's no larger thing. There's no larger lesson to be had here, at least unless, you know, I, I'm open to it but I, I didn't find anything other than it, this being a very, you know, you know, new Hollywood kind of movie. That's a character focused drama, which is what I love. That's like my favorite kind of film. So I, I mean, like I I'm, I'm mixed on it. Like I just wanted, I wanted a little bit more from her character. Hmm. Well, like I said, I think I felt more the way you did the first time I saw it, but the second time through, I, I wholly embraced it except for that ending that's a bit out of nowhere and i think coppola might uh, might admit that himself too i was kind of into it <laughs> <laughs> the rain people was um the first movie of coppola's that got uh the the american zoetrope imprint his uh you know his independent 
film company that he uh, he started up in San Francisco with uh, Walter Murch, who I mentioned, and then George Lucas, who uh, sort of his opposite in in personality in in every way, and and went to U USC film school instead of UCLA. But uh, he, you know, another one of the big film brats who had a huge impact on uh, on the direction of where Hollywood films headed uh, in the 70s. And um, yeah, and his his first film, THX 11138, was released through uh, American Zoetrope. And Coppola enjoyed his experience making Rain People so much, being free from the watchful eyes of the studios and, and not having anybody, you know, keeping tabs on him because he's just you know, in this van traveling across country filming this movie that he said, you know, I can, I can keep this going. I can, I can open my own studio in, uh, in San Francisco far enough away where I can you know, draw on the, the Hollywood talent, but not, not have the, the suits keeping an eye on me and, and just sell my product to, uh, to the studios and they can release it. And, uh, seemed like a great idea at the time. It kind of fell through, uh, with Warner Brothers and Seven Arts, but that's kind of a tale for for the seventies, which obviously, you know, th things got bad for American Zoetrope before they got good again. After uh, Coppola ended up making, well, he got the Academy Award for Patton and then made The Godfather, and and you know, everything everything was looking up for him until the eighties. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, then they got bad again. But you know what? Now you can go to to Zoetrope Studios. It's in the Sentinel Building in San Francisco that I. When I was there, I, I found by mistake, even I didn't even think about it and walked right past it. And I was like, wait a minute, there's like a whole cafe. You can <laughs> sit outside and pretend like you're upstairs in the editing suites. Yeah, that's basically the the story of how New Hollywood came to be from the perspective of a single filmmaker. I mean, Martin Scorsese was was in there. He was another film school brat and his work really took Hollywood in a new direction, but uh, but Coppola was was the first a, a a prime mover in getting some some young blood into Hollywood and, and changing the direction of how films were made. Sixty uh, seven with uh, Bonnie and Clyde and uh, and The Graduate. Those two are, are often named as the two movies that kicked off New Hollywood. But uh, you know neither neither Mike Nichols or, or Arthur Penn were they they'd been in the biz for a while weren't necessarily fresh blood, even though they, they brought a new perspective to Hollywood that wasn't there before, but it really took these, these film school guys who, who got, uh, you know, learned, learned in a classroom how to make their movies. It, it took Coppola and, and these guys to really uh, bring the, the golden age uh, that, uh, that some people consider the seventies in Hollywood to be. I gotta say one thing that I really appreciate about Francis Ford Coppola is how varied his career actually is. Um, and, and I don't even mean that in like a shithead way. Like, I mean that genuinely, it, it, it's really cool to me that you can have somebody as talented as Francis Ford Coppola, who made multiple cinematic classics forever, stone cold, amazing films, and not even in his biggest hits. It's like even smaller films, everything. Like, I mean, this guy, he's got it all. And yet he also has these sort of big epic flops that are also still fascinating and amazing, but it's so cool to see how he came up in the sixties that he went from being the guy that was like, let me just say yes to whatever. And then worked his way through it. It wasn't a matter of like, I feel like nowadays the thing that makes a big splash is the director that 
has their, uh, you know, their first film is amazing. And then the second film is tepid and the third film's amazing. You know, it's like, it has to be these, like, you know, they have to come fully formed. And with Coppola, when you're looking at all of his work and especially his entire body of work, you'd, you'd see an evolution of, of an artist. Like you see somebody who is really stretching himself and, and figuring out how to both conform and then how to make something for himself at the same time and try and try and game the system the best that he can and then when he finally sort of, you know, exploited all of the stuff he was doing in Hollywood, he started his wine business basically to just fund more movies. And now he has Megalopolis or whatever coming out, uh, you know, if it ever comes out, if it ever comes out. But, you know, that that he's been sitting and waiting just to fund more films. I mean, like that to me is really it's great. I mean, that's that's the kind of like heroes that we we need to see. It's not just the the young upstarts, you know, like the, to, to see somebody who. Uh, was still crushing it, you know, in his 40s and 50s, uh, making really interesting movies, whether or not they were massive blockbusters or not. I mean, it doesn't even matter. And also, I mean, even seeing, you know, uh, Apocalypse Now, I mean, when you watch the uh, Heart of Darkness documentary about the making of that movie, it's it's kind of nice to see how often Coppola is like, this is a fucking failure. And I'm a hack and everything is awful and i i just want to die <laughs> <laughs> and then you watch that movie and you're like oh, this is the best film that's ever been made i mean like it's just like it's it's amazing everything that went into that movie is amazing you know just how you even managed to pull together like the basic stuff of that film and so it, it's just i find him very uh i find him inspirational i find him very cool and very intriguing and even his you know like one from the heart I don't like, but I, I, I mean, you cannot not watch that and not be in awe of what he did. That's a pretty movie. It's insane. <laughs> it's actually crazy. Coppola, man. <laughs> yeah, he, he is definitely a maverick. That's the adjective that's, that's used to describe a lot of these new Hollywood guys. Um, but it probably maybe Robert Altman more than any of them, but uh, it, it definitely is a good word to describe Coppola because he just like went for it. He said, I'm going to do this my way and I'm going to convince people that my way is, is the right way. And, and he just, yeah, you know, he did what he had to do to make the movies that he wanted to make. But at the same time, he just had the, the confidence to say that, yeah, but this is, you should be making my movie because this is the sort of movie you should be making. And, uh, and just that, that boldness I think is, is a big part of you know, why this break from old Hollywood to new Hollywood seem is, seems so, you know, significant. And, uh, you know, it's, it's such a, such a major break from the way movies were made before. But even the early crap is, is fascinating. Like go back and watch some of these sixties movies. You don't have to watch all of them, but you should do yourself a favor, watch some of his sixties films and just like recognize that a genius can also make movies like this. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like that everyone has to start somewhere. You're not born and then you make the godfather. Like, you know, you have to go through this in order to get to where he got. All of this is informed. I mean, you can see where parts of the godfather came from even these earlier films. You know, it's just it's nice to see this this early stuff, this rough, sketchy stuff. Like to me, it's just like it's like looking at a sketch 
you know, of a, of a famous painter. Sometimes I feel like I look at sketches by famous painters and I think that the sketch is way cooler than the, than the famous painting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's not the case with Coppola, but it is really cool to, to see this stuff. So I don't know. I think this was really fun. Yeah, it does does give you hope it's like you know right it gives you get get it get it out there like (laughs) you know it doesn't matter how crappy it is just get it out there get have people see your work and and uh you know impress them just enough so that you can make the next one better and yeah he is an inspiration yeah and and failures will always inform your your next success i mean nothing nothing happens in a void Failures are just as useful as, as success. And that's part of why, you know, and I think I've said this before on, on Cinema 60, but like, that's why I like watching movies that I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you learn something. Maybe it's just that you never want to watch Finian's Rainbow ever again, but you learn yeah. something, you know. Well, that's the problem. You don't like really good movies. So, <laughs> <laughs> of course, they're worth watching. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.